You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University and where else but Houston, Texas. With me this morning is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, How go things this morning, Michael? They go as well as anybody could possibly ask them to this late in the semester. You know, Houston could be, uh, Houston Baptist could be in Houston County, Georgia. I guess then it would be Houston Baptist University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's that's a hearkening back to last week's uh, episode, dear listeners, and on the Vigilantes of Love album Blister Soul, <laughs> in which one of the major plot points was how place names in Georgia have counterintuitive pronunciations. Albany, Cairo. Yeah, <laughs> Albany's my favorite. I I, uh, I I basically can't say Albany. Because I'm so used Mon- to saying Albany. Or, uh, you know, the other one is Vienna. Yeah, Monroe. <laughs> oh, God. I, I, had a, I had a neighbor in Tallahassee who said that he and his wife were taking a tour of Vienna. And I thought, I, I, I was very close to asking how many days you could possibly spend in Vienna, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know they make the sausages there, but. Well, the other gentleman chuckling about our Georgia jokes is someone who lives there, uh, Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. So, how are things going this morning, Nathan? Oh, going pretty well. I, I am uh, counting down the days till I get to return to a real boy teaching load, uh, <laughs> and I'm down to right about two weeks, so I am, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to... Uh, what'll that be? Seventeen days from now, when uh, this semester's teaching load is over. Excellent. You know, Nathan, you'll always be a carpet bagging Yankee to me. I know you live in Georgia <laughs> now, but <laughs> oh, 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 believe me. I mean, I, I definitely remain aware that I am a Hoosier in exile. <laughs> Excellent. So today we are looking at a book. Uh, we're beginning a book. We're going to spend three episodes on this. This is the first book in for common things, irony, trust, and commitment in America today. It was published in 1999. It's by Jedediah Purdy. Mm-hmm. So my first question, I'm going to pitch at you, Nathan. Who is Jedediah Purdy and why are we reading him? Because I had never heard of him before he'll pitch this book as a triptych for this semester. And my first thought was, he sounds like some kind of backwoods guy from an Appalachian holler. <laughs> well, it's interesting because uh, I also had never heard of him before Michael suggested this book as our okay. uh, trilogy for this semester. So uh, when I started reading it, I really had no uh, preconceptions other than he sounded like a uh, whale ship captain from Moby Dick. 
Um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> that's what I thought of the name. That's what you thought of the name. Here's the actual story. Uh, as Jedediah Purdy tells it himself, he was raised in West Virginia. Uh, he was homeschooled, although he's a little bit ambiguous about whether that term was in currency when, in his youth. Uh, largely for reasons that aren't going to be all that familiar to 21st century folks, uh, you know, famous with or familiar with the homeschool movement. It wasn't because uh, West Virginia schools were right wing fascists, so his hippie parents decided to keep him home. Uh, it wasn't because they were secular and were going to uh, turn him worldly, uh, so they gave him a you know evangelical education. But rather, it was because uh, his mother didn't want him spending three hours a day on a school bus. The consolidation movement was in full swing when he was a child, and in place of the local, you know, community elementary school, uh, large regional elementary schools had sprung up, which meant that busing uh, had stopped being something, you know, to get kids whose parents worked, you know, to their school 20 minutes down the road uh, mm -hmm. into something where you're trying to gather all the children from an arbitrarily drawn region uh, all into the same building. So it, it, it's interesting that their decision to homeschool is not one of the conventional reasons that our listeners in the Midwest or South are necessarily going to be familiar with. And that's important as we roll on into the next part of his story, because uh, one of the early examples that he gives of engagement with the common life, and of course, you know, Four Common Things is our title here, is that his mother, uh, as he gets older and as he gets ready to depart for college and other such enterprises, uh, joins the local school board and starts campaigning pretty vigorously against the consolidation movement for a return to local schools, so on and so forth. And what he sees as his mother engages is a culture that has a profound distrust of the political uh, that doesn't like people who dedicate significant parts of their time to getting into politics, uh, and that moreover uh, treats politics as a matter of self-serving. Um, well, I mean, let's let's just leave that as a noun phrase: self-serving. So, in other <laughs> words, it's yeah. inconceivable to them that someone who is a homeschool parent would be concerned with the status of public schools. So, all of these things kind of roll together. Uh, into the ideas that we're going to be talking about in this book. Uh, if you Google around for Jedediah Purdy now, he's published a couple more books since then. He has gone to law school, succeeded there, and become part of the Duke University law faculty. Uh, so this is a serious thinker uh, with some serious ideas, and uh, I look forward to digging into it. Michael, I I, I gave the uh, broad strokes there. Uh, is there anything you would add to that biography? My understanding is actually a law professor at Duke when he wrote this book, and he was 25 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, uh, the, the, the amount of erudition this guy got uh, from, from a very unconventional homeschooling, even by homeschooling standards. I mean, to mm -hmm. hear him talk about it, his parents basically just set him loose in the woods and let him talk to people. I don't yeah, know how yeah. much of that is a, an exaggeration, but uh, if if that is true, it paid off. Yeah, I, what it reminded me of was the uh, narrator from the novel uh, River Runs Through It. You know, this idea that, you know, instead of going to school, he just kind of, you know, became a citizen of the town 
And perhaps that's the reason why, you know, no one took the time to tell him he shouldn't be a law professor at age 25. Right. Right. <laughs> um, his most recent book is called After Nature, uh, A Politics for the Anthropocene, I think is the subtitle. But I, I reviewed that for uh, the Englewood Review of Books. It's, I, I think, a, a very interesting book. He is a, a lot of the... Uh, the idealism you see in For Common Things he has maintained 17 years later. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid I can't share his idea, his idealism or optimism, but I appreciate that he has it. He's also a uh, avid Twitterer. He uh, posts a mm-hmm. lot of pictures of North Carolina uh, scenery and uh, stuff about Bernie Sanders. <laughs> that being said, I, I think of him, and I, I don't know what he would say to this, um, but I, I, I think of him as having certain things in common with uh, crunchy conservatism, that, that Rod Dreher kind of conservatism, the um, front porch republic, in, in that he, he's very into localism and uh, environmental conservation. Uh, he's not a, he's not cer- certainly not a conservative in the sense that he, uh, he, he stumps for the free market economy. Or, uh, that, that's one of the, the big villains of for common things. But I, uh, he is conservative in certain very interesting ways that I think would probably appeal to a lot of our listeners. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he is conservative in the way that someone like Roger Scruton is conservative, but in ways that, you know, a lot of AM radio hosts would find uh, communist. Right. Well, and the, the, fact that, <laughs> the fact that he he's such a Bernie Sanders fan suggest that. I think a lot of conservatives, a certain type of conservative, respect and like Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I I was just, uh, uh, as I was getting into it, um, when I was reading the introduction, I really resonated off of the homeschool side of it, because I was like, I was homeschooled too! I thought you would. (laughs) Yeah, his experience was very different from mine, but at the same time, the sense of embeddedness within uh, his location, the degree to which he got to know people around him, the degree to which uh, academic life and home life blended in together, less so much home and home and work, um, because I was not I was not raised on a farm. Um, my dad went to work, and work happened outside of the house. In that sense. Um, but but still, there are some ways that he that that he speaks of of the the elision of categories that are very separate to people um, who kind of come through more institutional schooling. Um, that that uh, that felt very familiar to me. So yeah, I, I I appreciated that. And so he was from an Appalachian holler. So that's cool. Yeah, in fact, I think he uses the word hollow mm-hmm. in the book. He doesn't call it a holler. <laughs> I'm not sure Harvard UP would have, would have let him print it that way. <laughs> the editors probably corrected it. Well, with a grandmother from West Virginia, I feel I feel comfortable uh, using that term. Anyways, you know, I I suggested this book because um, when I was reading it, and I I'll talk about the circumstances under which I first read this book a little later, but. Uh, I, I recommended this book because, as I read it, I thought, well, half of this sounds like Nathan, and the other half sounds like David. <laughs> so I figured you guys would both find stuff to like in it. I thought it occurred to me as well. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, we ought to get into the content. And I'm going to pitch this one at you, Michael. So 
when I started Purdy's introduction, he began with Emerson, and then he moved to Thoreau, and usually that's where I stop reading, <laughs> you know. But he's citing them to identify something in the the American spirit, the American imagination, uh, however you would characterize that, that in spite of Emerson and Thoreau's enthusiasm for it, has had some negative consequences that he sees in the generation that he's writing for. So what is that factor in the American imagination and why is why is Purdy here? Yeah, so the 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 strand in Emerson he's talking about, I, sh- I should say the iron string in Emerson he's talking about is the self-reliance string, the the trust mm-hmm. yourself um brand of uh, American transcendentalism. I, I think I've argued on this podcast and on profiles that Emerson is more complicated than that, but that doesn't matter. Purdy's not claiming this is the only thing Emerson ever said, just that this is what American culture really picked up from him, and I think that is accurate. So um, the self-reliance and the kind of distrust of authority that, that have existed in America from the very beginning, and certainly from mm-hmm. the uh, from the 1840s when when Emerson is is writing his most famous works, he contrasts that trust thyself with Alexis de Tocqueville's observation in Democracy in America that, well, I'm trying to see how, how exactly he puts it. Um, e- each white man believed almost instinctively that he was as good, as deserving, as full of possibility as anyone else. Far from knowing his place, the typical American was marked by a deep, hopeful uncertainty about where he might end up. So you have, on the one hand, this sense that nobody can do it for you, that you have to do it for yourself. And you have that kind of Huey Long-style populist democracy. Uh, Every man is a king, or at least every man is a future king. You sometimes hear people criticizing poor people who vote for the GOP um, as, as believing that everybody's a future millionaire. And so they should go ahead and vote for the policies that will benefit them when they inevitably become millionaires. And I think that's what he's talking about. When you combine these two things, Purdy says, you end up with an American who has no idea where he belongs in the universe, which on the one hand is the great glory of America, um, at least in theory, is that you're able to shift social classes with ease. Now, we all know that's not quite as easy as the, the myth makes it believe, but that's our myth, so that, that is what I think most of us instinctually believe. But on the other hand, it means you don't... There's no comfort in knowing, well, this is what I am. This is, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Instead, you have this realm of pure possibility open to you, at least in theory, and that's kind of terrifying. Now, that could result in um, a very healthy public conversation because we're all capable of moving between classes. We're all capable of being whatever we want. But instead, he says, it often leads to a kind of stasis. And certainly you see this in the early republic um, artistically. There is no real American literature uh, the story goes until Whitman. I, I think it probably actually begins with Emerson, but whatever. Um, and and that's because we Americans don't really know who we are, and because of that, it's going to be very hard to have a public life that uh, that is robust and helpful. Uh, and so, what ends up happening is people retreat into private life, and they retreat. Their, their public life becomes only the most uh, commercial vi- uh, version of it possible, right? So, there, 
what mm-hmm. matters is we have this free market that allows us all to become millionaires even when it doesn't and other than that i don't see why we need to talk to each other all that much and 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 this is the world he finds himself in and he traces it back i think quite rightly to that emersonian ideal that ends up being an unreachable ideal and and an ideal you probably wouldn't want to reach who really wants to be self-reliant in the sense that emerson's talking about to listen (laughs) to no authority i mean that's that's childish that's that's Huck Finn setting off down the river. It it mm-hmm. it's something that feels good when you're 14 years old, but past that, it it's uh, I don't know. It's it's an arrested development of sorts. But that's the American mm-hmm. spirit, he suggests. Mm-hmm. Am I leaving anything out, it's, Nathan? It, it, it's interesting. Before I get to what I would add, but uh, it, it's funny when I hear you talk about Emerson, and you talk obviously more about Emerson than I do on these podcasts. But uh, <laughs> I'm 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 reminded that we both studied Emerson with Chris Boudreaux because uh-huh. uh, didn't you study uh, Emerson under uh, Boudreaux at UGA? Yeah, I sure did. That's why I said uh huh. Oh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> uh, so- <laughs> yeah, I took an Emerson in Melville class with uh, with uh, Chris. Okay, cool. and I took a survey of American Lit in which we had to read, I think, 1,100 pages of Emerson in a week. Holy uh, cow! We didn't read 1,100 pages of Emerson the whole semester in an Emerson and, class. And, <laughs> well, the, uh, the joke was on me because I was one of two people who did all the reading. <laughs> well, that sounds like you. Uh, yeah, well, I've got big sucker, that's me. Uh, but what I find interesting about this is that uh, although I am not by any means uh, a, a full-throated supporter of Michel Foucault's project, I think that he is a useful thinker when you look at this American picture that Purdy's painting because America formally uh, and the way that we narrate ourselves and in the sort of mythologies that animate us, we are a realm of absolute freedom or something close to absolute freedom and yet as purdy notes uh the complete lack of framework tends not to make people bold but actually makes them more timid than they might be if they had something against which to rebel and i think that that uh paradox there that contradiction if you will really kind of leads to that uh the simultaneous potential and anxiety that you see there uh and i and i think it's interesting that in my own experience, and you guys can tell me if, if you see the same thing, folks from small towns, just because they tend to be rooted geographically the way that we've been talking about, tend to have resources to resist that that kids from the suburbs don't necessarily. Um, I, I know that in my own experience, when I sort of got that vertigo from the notion that you know there was nothing that I was supposed to do with my life, but I could do whatever the heck I wanted... Uh, sort of remembering my own grandparents was something that sort of rooted me spiritually uh, and gave me a, a, a sense that, okay, whatever it is that I become, I am at the same time a member of this family. Mm. I, d- 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 does that uh, make any sense to you guys? Yes, although I grew up in the suburbs and have much less sense of that. I would say this is one of the this is one of the virtues of the small college, probably Christian or otherwise, but especially Christian, is that we mm-hmm. have a we, we, we have this community in which we can look at the world and also against which we can kick, which is also sometimes necessary. So oh, yeah, yeah. There's an identity absolutely. I suspect you can't get in a large state university just because mm-hmm. it's so big. It's so 
um, it's it's so well. It's a un, it's a multiversity, really. It's it. it <laughs> there's all these there's all these different movements within it. Um, right, and I, and I, and I and I should clear that up. I grew up in the suburbs of Indianapolis, but I was the first in my family to grow up in the suburbs of Indianapolis uh, for you know at least five generations before we were a coal mine region family in southern Indiana. My dad was the the first from either side of my family to move out of. Pike County, Indiana. This is also one of the great evils of global culture is that in mm-hmm. stomping out these smaller communities, in, in, in universalizing human experience, in getting rid of, for, for example, Spain. Spain had to get rid of its uh, siesta. or they're, they're thinking about getting rid of its siesta um, in order to, uh, to compete globally. And, and you're really losing something there because the siesta is a local practice in which you can find an identity to resist global culture. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's not just the siesta that's making them unable to compete. Probably, but they're getting rid of the siesta in order to compete, you know? I, I yeah. suspect eventually it's going to ha- come down to France getting rid of their um, month-long mandatory vacation, which, you know, whatever you think about it as a strategy, sets France apart from these other places and gives them a cultural mm. tradition to operate within. Right, right. And, and that makes me sad because that is treating the siesta and the vacation as... Uh, intermediate terms rather than ultimate terms. I mean, it strikes me that you have an economy for the sake of giving people a siesta, not the other way around. Uh, for for more on which, you should listen to my interview with John Kessler on Profiles a few mm-hmm. a few mm-hmm. weeks ago about our 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 need for rest. Really, I think probably one of the most important popular level Christian books of the last few years. Mm-hmm. There's one thing in this introduction that. Uh, I don't think we've scratched at which is the uh, the intellectual inertia that comes out of that um, kind of heightened sense of choose your own adventure egalitarianism, mm-hmm. which is that if we are all already equal, if we're all already just as good as each other, nobody has any particular edge in terms of insight, in terms of perspective. Mm-hmm. And if I'm all already as all if I'm already as good as you in that particular arena, why would I need to improve my mind, dialogue, cultivate my intellect, cultivate my, you know, my, my tastes, you know, why, why would I need to do any of that if I'm already, if the, if the play field, if the, you know, the field is already kind of leveled in that sense, I have nothing to aspire to in that way either. And, and why should I? Why should I listen to any sort of expert? I know I harp on this a lot, but Jenny McCarthy <laughs> saying she doesn't need a medical degree to know that vac- vaccinations cause autism because she has the. She went to the University of Google. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, well, and uh, the, the kinds of things that lie behind phrases like "Who do you think you are?" and mm-hmm. you know, you know. So you think you're better than us because you have that degree, you know that that, that kind of that kind of attitude is. Um, I mean, it's re- it's 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 re- it's really it's really deadening to tell people you are already. You know, if 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 you hear you are all equal to mean all of our ideas are equally <laughs> full of merit, mm-hmm. um, then you have a real problem. Right, and that's what you know makes teaching 
Plato and Dante and, you know, sort of pre-Enlightenment writing so revolutionary for American students uh, Mm -hmm. because this notion that your desires might not be the best kinds of desires to desire. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not something that is in our sort of national consciousness, you know. I mean, this is a... A, an idea that is is rising from a forgotten age, uh, and that's that's part of what makes this book fun, and also what makes uh, the jobs that we have fun. And the uh, awesome. to stump for the Christian college again—that is another way that we are capable of helping people resist that monoculture. Mm-hmm. Right. So chapter one made me perk up, Nathan. Uh, apparently, <laughs> apparently, Jed hates irony. And thinks it is killing America, <laughs> and I tend to be incl—I uh, tend to incline to agree towards that. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that I'm never ironic myself, <laughs> but there are certain kinds of irony that make me want to, you know, throw things through windows. So, Certainly. what is so bad about knee-jerk irony, especially? One of the questions that I found myself asking when I was reading this is. Uh, and actually, Michael might be able to to uh, address this from knowledge later instead of just from speculation. Uh, but what would Jedediah Purdy have thought of the year 2002, uh, mm-hmm. just three years after this book was published? Because as I remember 2002, we were just awash in seriousness and earnestness and God bless America and so on and so forth. But... Let's talk about the book that he actually wrote, not the book that he might have written. Uh, in 1999, Jedediah Purdy takes a look at sort of a broad cultural landscape and notes that the folks who are coming through college there in the 1990s when I was an undergrad, uh, the educated folks, the English majors of the world, uh, tend not to reward sincerity so much as they reward irony. And by irony, he doesn't mean uh, something like a Diogenes flavored cynicism where the world is so corrupt that the only moral thing to do is to distance yourself from it and to scorn it uh, from a standpoint of moral superiority, but rather to shrug at the very possibility of moral superiority in the first place. Mm. Uh, This is a literate, but not necessarily uh, passionate uh, pursuit of nothing. Uh, it, It is an endeavor to avoid being the fool to avoid being the sucker but there's no sense that those are for the sake of anything else so what you know what he points to uh is you know a culture where sincerity and strong will and things like that become caricatures in the culture uh rather than being the people that one aspires to imitate and you know and I realize I, I take swipes at Bill Clinton, I feel like, every three episodes. But, oh, but he you know, hates Bill Clinton so much. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in this case, I've got a kindred spirit because, you know, with Bill Clinton, uh, you've got someone who just stops pretending that he's doing other anything other than reading the polls for the week and adjusting his policies accordingly. Mm. Uh, there's no sense with Bill Clinton's public persona now, of course, I mean, he's tried to rewrite his own story in, in the last couple decades. We can talk about that later or not. I don't care. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the time, his public persona was, uh, yeah, you know, 
whatever it is that you know the people think they want, I'm going to triangulate. I'm going to take what I basically want, what they basically want, and we're going to come up with something that uh, you know makes you think that you've got what you want when we're actually doing what I'd prefer to happen. Uh, so I mean, whether it's in you know pop culture, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the way that educated people approach the world, he sees irony as a lack of telos, and I don't think he uses that term, but I'm going to use it, uh, that's been replaced by uh, a sort of anxiety, like we talked about earlier, that you're going to get taken advantage of, that you're going to get made a fool of. Uh, Michael, I mean, what other phenomena uh, would you group under irony, according to Purdy? I think it's interesting how much he grounds this in popular culture, and I know we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but, but he points out that the more educated you are, and especially the more educated you are in a certain sort of humanities, the more, uh, the more apt you are to be ironic. And thus, because sitcom writers are all Harvard graduates, uh, all English majors at Harvard, they, uh, our sitcoms then and now were just rife with this sort of toxic irony. He -hmm. also points out that it didn't take long for Madison Avenue to co-opt that irony. And so you have commercials that are encouraging you to laugh at them for being commercials as if you were in on the joke, when in fact Mm -hmm. the joke is really on you because you're still with the commercial. And I think of, I I feel like we've talked about this before on the show. Do you, do you remember the Sprite commercials from the the (laughs) 90s? I was just going to mention, I was just going to mention Grant Hill. Yeah. Image, image is nothing. Thirst is everything. So they're commercials, they're commercials that, that set themselves up to be one kind of commercial and then end up being, end up making fun of that sort of commercial. But while you're laughing at it, you forget that, it's it's still a commercial. They're still trying to sell you Sprite. And it must have worked. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. And the image they are selling is, if you drink a Sprite, you won't be one of the suckers. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, th- and that's their game to make you a sucker. <laughs> I, I would connect this to a David Foster Wallace essay called, uh, I, have to, I have to think about it before I say the title, uh, E Unibus Plurum. It's the opposite of the American, um, the, the American slogan. Uh, out of out of one many, and it's it's about it's about irony in television and how toxic and self referential it becomes. Until basically, it's a drug. I mean, this is a this is a famous argument Wallace makes um, that that, mm-hmm. that television is as addictive as anything else, and what you get addicted to is this sense of superiority um, fostered by pervasive irony. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, one of the things that he brings up right at the beginning is Seinfeld, and he spends so much time with Seinfeld, <laughs> and I think I've maybe watched one episode of that. I mean, is 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 Seinfeld really, really that really a, an example of this, or uh, I, I the, because he he was focused so much on pop culture, he was focused on things that I wasn't engaged with at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, so. the ent- the entire run of Seinfeld is now on Hulu Plus, and and Victoria and I watched it last summer, and it, it's funny. It's a funny show, um, but it's a toxic show in exactly the way David Foster Wallace is talking about in that essay, and exactly okay. the way Purdy talks about here. I think he nails it. the The unofficial okay. motto of the writers of Seinfeld is "No hugging, no learning." 
So, um, <laughs> so, so the idea is there's no moral progression on that show. They are they are perfectly aloof from everything that does not correspond to, really, frankly, their basest pleasures. Um, mm-hmm. Any kind of human suffering is is made into a joke. And, and and the season the series finale of Seinfeld is kind of like those Sprite commercials. The the gang gets arrested for making fun of a guy who's getting mugged instead of doing anything about him. And and again, the joke is supposed to be on them. You're supposed to be laughing at them, but of course you're doing the exact same thing to them that they're doing to this other this other poor uh, person. Like, like you're there's no um, there's no moral there's no moral assertion there. It's just it's just flat irony and and so watching through that show last summer i it, it is innervating after a while you you just it 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 just wears you down the the display of uh cavalier human ugliness on it mm. I, I think a lot of shows from the 90s are that way i think friends is that way um i think friends is just basically a seinfeld knockoff you your wife i know is a big friends fan david you must have seen enough episodes to Agree with me or disagree with me? Well, I think there might be a little more hugging and learning in Friends, but but even so, there's there's not a whole lot of a moral character arc. No, nobody's nobody's getting better in this show. Both of those shows, both of those shows are an argument against the notion I said earlier that small communities foster virtue. Because <laughs> all, all of those people are worse off than if they didn't hang out with the people they hang out with. Another show that I think that, that I think displays this really one of my favorite sitcoms ever, um, News Radio, uh, kind of an underground sitcom from the nineties. It's a really funny show, but again, it's it's this it's this hip flatness. It's it's people you are encouraged to dislike, and yet you keep watching. There's there's mm-hmm. no there's there's no moral impulse behind the show and i mean it's silly to say that sitcoms should have a moral impulse i get that and when they do have a moral impulse you often end up with something like full house um Mm -hmm. where it's just so it's so hollow and empty that you can't take it seriously but the best the best sitcoms i'm sorry have have some sort of human heart at their center Uh, the simpsons uh is really a great example of this the simpsons is ironic a lot. I mean, no doubt. It, it, it is it is ironic and cynical, to use the two terms Purdy uses. But also, there's a genuine humanity to the best episodes of that show that you will never find in Seinfeld. Never, ever, ever, ever. So, hmm. it does continue. Um, I, I think the show Arrested Development is a great 21st century example of exactly the sort of attitude he's, he's noticing in Seinfeld. Arrested right. Development is a hilarious show, but it is it is people... Until, until Netflix gets a hold of it. Well, that's true. The fourth season was an abomination. <laughs> but... but- yeah, I mean, there's just there's no emotional core to that show. It's it's all surface, and it's a really funny, really well done, really baroque surface. But at a certain point, watching it, you just start you start to feel like you've eaten too much candy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually came to this book because I was writing a paper on the show Parks and Recreation that was about irony and sincerity. So uh, mm-hmm. that that episode um, informed. That I'm sorry. That paper informed two episodes we did when Danny Anderson was a sub on the show, the episode on authenticity mm-hmm. and the episode on metamodernism. So that, that's how right. I came to this, and I was very interested with his analysis of uh, of sitcoms. By the way, the flip side to Seinfeldian irony is is 
utterly hollow earnestness. And his example is not Full House, but the show Touched by an Angel, which I've never seen. Yep. (laughs) Talk about Touched by an Angel, Nathan. Oh, goodness. I haven't seen much of it. uh, And I won't say who was actually watching it when I was in the room, uh, because I know people (laughs) listen to this. But, uh, you know, it is a show episodic in character. Uh, Each week there is someone who runs into, you know, some sort of hardship that is uh, something that tugs at your heartstrings but isn't so dire that you couldn't solve it in 40 minutes minus commercials. Um, (laughs) And, you know, uh, the angel character in that uh, doesn't really exert any divine power that I can remember in the few episodes that I've seen, uh, but instead basically gives them Hallmark card advice so that they end up doing the authentic thing and, you know, because they do, the family relationship is restored and so on and so forth. So uh, it, it, it really is a 40-minute a Hallmark card. Uh, and like you said, I mean, there's no... Uh, well, actually, I mean, I, I, since I was on that episode, when the Sectarian Review uh, did praise movies, there's a lot of kinship there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the problems are problems that you can deal with in 40 minutes. Uh, you know, there is no sense of, you know, sort of Athenian tragedy there where when you do the right thing, there's going to be a superhuman irresistible force that's going to destroy you for it. Uh, if you do the right thing, then your family's going to get back together and you're going to be happy. Uh, so like Michael said, you know, this sort of, uh, sentimental moralism is really kind of the flip side of the Arrested Development Seinfeld thing. And then, if I if I could just you know uh, add a third category of phenomenon that's that's sort of grown up since then, you get the what I would call the social activist sitcom, uh, and you know this is the sort where you know uh, I, I think of it as Glee after the first half of season one, uh-huh. where <laughs> they start to think of themselves as a force for social change, and, and it's so all very special episodes. Oh man, and and it is <laughs> it, it is so preachy that you're almost hoping that they're going to wink at you, but they never do. And see, so. I would say I would say they do wink at you throughout. I, I would connect that show very much to that meta modern sensibility, and and with the rapid oscillation between earnestness and 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 uh, irony. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. But I mean, as far as their moments of earnestness. But nobody's going to wink during those moments. No, that's true. That's true. And I, and I mean, for that reason, I mean, I, I've often said that, you know, if, if you, you know, take Glee and replace it with, you know, evangelical writers, you basically get God's not dead. Probably true. The, and <laughs> a, a fourth category is the utterly cynical cable drama. Um, something like Mad Men or Breaking Bad. Um, Breaking Bad maybe less so, but but so, something that uh, House of Cards certainly mm-hmm. uh, a show that just displays un, unremitting ugliness with a with a male antihero whom you're supposed to root for even though they're objectively terrible. Right, right, because because you know the the reprehensible male is the only character who's on screen long enough for you to develop an attachment. And I would say at certain points, those shows can have a moral thrust to them that maybe the other things we're talking about don't really have a moral thrust. I, I would say Glee right. is a morally idiotic show, no matter what your politics are. Yeah, yeah. But, but and, and a, also, show like Breaking, honestly, a show like Breaking Bad has a genuine ethical 
spine to it i think at least till the yeah and, 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 I, and i think honestly that's because it's in conversation intellectually at least even if not in terms of direct influence with that athenian and roman tragic tradition mm-hmm. right yeah and i'm sorry david we've wandered so far afield from your question <laughs> no you haven't what you what, 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 what you've done is actually taken it in the direction which i was interested in doing um, you know, this book was published in 1999, and so it's you know engaging engaging that culture. And there's been you know 17 years of water under the bridge, and you know I'm I'm interested in you know on your take. You know, is this culture as ironic as uh, as as the one he as the one Purdy's critiquing in the book? Have things gotten better? Have things gotten worse and different? And say something about mm-hmm. John Stewart. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You want me to talk about the Daily Show? Um, I, I think the Daily Show is sincere, uh, at least under Stewart. I, I haven't seen a lot of the Trevor Noah episodes, but fifty mm-hmm. percent of the Daily Show is John Stewart yelling his personal beliefs at the camera or mugging to uh, to, to clips. I, I would say that show is pretty darn sincere. the 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 ironic counterpole to that, of course, is the Colbert Report. Or was the Colbert Report? Yeah. Where where Colbert very rarely drops his ironic mask. I like him very much as a person, but I couldn't watch the Colbert Report. It was just <laughs> it was just too much for. Me. But anytime you hear an yeah. interview with him, I think, yeah, this is a guy I can hang out with when he is being sincere. Mm-hmm. See, mm-hmm. I've always I, I saw the Daily Show as actually very ironic, not in its stance towards the particular values and and, and positions that Stewart identifies with. But in its treatment of the opposing ones, um, that you know that that the you know whatever whatever figures um, Stewart thinks thinks are you know are ridiculous disagrees with, but uh, it, it, a very ironic stance is taken towards that in the sense of uh, it's, I, it's, it seemed to me denying that it's possible that someone could sincerely in good faith think those things I, now, mm. I was not a a faithful viewer of that show um but my my recollection is his biggest target is hypocrisy the the, the kind of standard montage on that show is a politician saying well i would never do xyz and then a series of clips of him saying the exact opposite of that followed by yep. on camera staring open mouthed at the at the camera <laughs> right yep well right, that, I, 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 i'll go ahead david yeah but that, i mean that 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 kind of stance is not going to encourage you is not going to encourage you to engage the issues without feeling that irony it becomes it becomes about the irony of the hypocrisy. I right. would say so he is much closer to cynicism on the on the Purdy spectrum, uh, a kind of principled withdrawal rather than continued engagement. I I, I would I, I okay. think I think there was a moral backbone to that show. Yeah, I, I, well, what I was going to say, David, is I mean, this is a it, it it's certainly an irony, but it's an irony that oscillates you know with that sincerity to go back to that metamodernism episode that michael keeps pointing to uh you know i mean that that's a phenomenon of the last 17 years like you just said david uh Mm -hmm. that this book doesn't really anticipate but uh that if you combine this book's analysis with that notion of metamodernism you can make a lot of sense of someone like john stewart or for that matter the meme culture on facebook right 
Uh, and, and, you know, like we talked about, Michael, back in that metamodernism episode, this is a phenomenon that you find endearing more often than I do. Uh, I find it pretty uniformly irritating, uh, but I'm also significantly older than you are. So <laughs> I don't know that I find it endearing, but I understand it, and I am driven to the same sort of oscillation. And, and I mean, the truth is, and I know you hate it when I bring this up, you're an Xer and I'm a millennial. I mean, just, just in terms of when we're born. So it makes uh-huh. sense. I mean, uh, in, in the Metamodernism mm-hmm. article, uh, Vermeulen and Vandenacker say this is a generational phenomenon. This is something millennials do. So I mean, it makes sense that you would you wouldn't like it, and and I would find just complete irony much more distasteful, which is a Generation X phenomenon. Not yeah, to, not really to paint is. too broad a brush, because David yeah. is one of the least ironic people I know, and he's an Xer. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But I, I I was definitely one of those nineteen uh, nineties English majors that uh, Purdy was describing. Yeah, I I, I think that I have a. Uh, become more interesting than that than that since then at least i hope i have <laughs> but uh that that's definitely a mentality that i can recognize from my own memory mm. all right fair enough well i asked uh, uh we we've already kind of taken this uh this conversation about this chapter into the present uh i'd like to invite you nathan to take it into the past in this chapter, Purdy has an extended meditation on Wired Magazine and Fast Company. <laughs> um, I never knew about Fast Company, and I'd forgotten about Wired. Because, Both still because, around, by the way. Fast Company still Yeah, I, I, I actually yeah. still subscribe to Wired, just for the sake of disclosure. <laughs> I, I never understood the existence of Wired Magazine because there was an internet. It seems... Yeah. I love how uh, much he hates those two magazines, though. <laughs> I love oh yeah, it when he yeah. hates things. <laughs> so yes, an extended meditation on those magazines, which uh, seem to me to present this vision of a performative yet authentic self-made individual, and but was treating it as as kind of a distinctly our time thing. But the whole time I was thinking, isn't that just Greenblatt's notion of self-fashioning in the Renaissance? So what do you think is what is distinctly contemporary in this thing he's observing? What's older? Um, are there maybe some elements of this that are even perennial in the human character? What do you think? My first impulse was to make this about capitalism because honestly, that's one of my intellectual habits. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> let, let me take it back further than that though, to talk about the perennial first and then I'll work my way up to the contemporary. Uh, I think if you even go past what Stephen Greenblatt is doing into the dawn of the Christian era, uh, if I can go from Stephen Greenblatt to another Stephen, the Stephen from the early chapters of Acts, Mm. what you get there, I think, is emblematic uh, of the sort of phenomenon we're talking about. Stephen there, uh, most famously before he is uh, stoned to death, narrates the history of Israel, but if you pay attention... Uh, he re-narrates it in terms that are completely antithetical to the intellectual, cultural, and political powers that are ascendant. Uh, in other words, because this new thing has happened, uh, you know he's doing it. God is doing a new thing. Um, Lord. <laughs> There's that irony, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I can't help it. But <laughs> that's, a, that's okay. I love rap music. Always have and always will. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. All right. Uh, but in that moment, Stephen shows us that in this new moment, uh, the categories that used to define him as a diaspora Hellenistic Jew mm-hmm. don't necessarily hold anymore. He re-narrates it so that he is at the center. And the people who are in authority become those rebelling against God. And that act of re-narration is something that happens whenever a human culture starts to think of itself as inhabiting a transitional moment. Now, the historians out there will no doubt hit me with the truism that every moment is a transitional moment. (laughs) I, I, I would counter with the notion that not every moment sees itself as a transitional moment. That first century, they decidedly did. In the Renaissance, when Stephen Greenblatt is talking about things, they decidedly do. And there, you get an influx of money, uh, largely stolen from the Aztecs and the Incas. Uh, You get a boom in printing, a new cultural explosion. Uh, You get, obviously, the Protestant Reformation, the Jesuit Counter-Reformation. You get all sorts of changes going on all at once, all around. And so, once again, you get this sense that people have the capability, like, you know, Christopher Columbus, you know, who, according to Greenblatt's account of him, is an Italian Jew who renames himself as the Christ-bearer and, you know, kind of emphasizes his last name, who sounds a lot like, you know, that early Irish missionary. I don't think that's a coincidence. Hmm. So, when you get into the late 20th century, where Jedediah Purdy is working the particularity of this moment, I won't say the uniqueness because I'm always afraid of saying something's unique. There always might be a second one out there. Uh, (laughs) But what's particular about this moment is that you've got a generation coming of age, and I am part of this generation, the Xers, uh, as people sometimes ham-fistedly call us. Oh, shut up. Whose parents were themselves a group that thought of themselves as fundamentally revolutionary. The, uh, you know, our parents were the Woodstock generation. So what we had to rebel against was a generation that thought themselves as rebels all the way down. And so mm-hmm. that sort of double negative action uh, gives you this moment where, you know, the sincerity of the revolutionary uh, gives way as it always does. If you let it sit around for a few decades uh, to the, iterations of hypocrisy uh that you know people like me meet with irony all right Mm -hmm. so what's distinct about this is not that irony happens because of course you know ben johnson happened uh you won't find someone more moralistic you won't find someone more anti-puritan uh and you will definitely find that they're the same person uh but in the late 20th century Like I said, you know, it's the profound double negative in American culture. It's the generation trying to differentiate ourselves from a generation who define themselves as different. Uh, And, you know, I I think that that's uh, that's really what's going on. So, uh, so Michael, uh, go ahead and do some uh, sociological analysis of me. Well, I, I, I think if you read Purdy closely, you'll notice that uh, that recasting moral stances as psychological tastes uh, is uh, is pretty toxic itself. I would point mm-hmm. out the, the the millennials. I think probably do see themselves, or probably do see ourselves as a as a hinged generation um, in a way that generation members of Generation X 
did not. Mm-hmm. It's true. You know, I mean, the, the fact that there are protests again on college campuses, I mean, real 1960s-style protests, whatever you think of the reasons for them, and I'm not a huge fan of them, uh, those are that is that is a generation that's taking itself seriously in a way that yours would not but at the same time Mm-mm. it's making fun of itself in a way that uh the baby boomers wouldn't because the baby boomers from my observation of them were uh, incredibly self-serious mhm so i don't know so david what do you think i mean did i did, does my uh three-tier analysis hold up <laughs> uh i yeah, I th- I I think that works. I think that works. Um, you know, de- dealing I mean, there is the particularity, but there's also uh, you know the I think there is something perennial in the human character that has to do with um, the way humans react to those moments, and when when uh, when those who see the you know. Uh, conceive a new thing as coming and identify with the new thing there, you know, there's, there's a need for, um, a, a narrative that makes sense of that, that, that change they see coming, um, and identifying with it. And that's what, you know, that's the, what the wired magazine stuff that he was pointing at. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, identify with the change coming. The robots will be our masters, be one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, be a tech and, and entrepreneur, right? I mean that that's the that's the hero of 2016 is the tech entrepreneur. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and if I right. could just offer one more uh, sort of cultural material exhibit to demonstrate this, I think Michael's right that the social media protest is sort of the iconic you know phenomenon for the millennials. I think that the street protest is sort of the iconic event for the 1960s. Uh, and you know my generation had zines. Yeah, <laughs> you know, che- cheaply printed, you know, sort of uh, clandestinely distributed, subversive publications. Mm-hmm. You, you uh, Generation Xers, like to make fun of millennials for social media protests, but the truth is, there are actual, factual, in-person protests going on all over the country on college campuses. Mm-hmm. I mean, Black Lives Matter blocked the Minneapolis uh, light rail just just last week. So there is such a thing as slacktivism, and I think slacktivism is something that Purdy would make fun of. What I'm less sure of is uh, is how much how much he would be on the side of of these in person protests, which are earnest in in real ways. I mean, in a, in a in a way that the zine culture is not. Oh, absolutely! I think you're right. I think you're right. I just I have to stick up for the millennials. Although, again, I'm sticking up for something I, I'm very ambivalent about. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems kind of millennial. Right. <laughs> well, shifting to chapter two, uh, it addresses lost faith in politics, and Purdy treats it not as an abrupt, but uh, as a kind of a gradual shift. Uh, was my read of that chapter that he's he's showing sort of stages in the the major. Uh, the major flavor, the major vision, the major perspective in American politics, and how those how those shifts have led to a gradual uh, disenchantment with it. So, Michael, how does this shift from a Promethean to a therapeutic mode of politics? Uh, how did, how did, how has it led some to want to abandon politics, 
and why does Purdy think that we should still stay in the game? Promethean politics are things we associate with people like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French Revolution, going straight through to Karl Marx and some other people like that, people who see the goal of politics as to radically rework the world. Um, Promethean politics has its upsides and its downsides, but ultimately it pretty much always fails. And when it succeeds, it's sometimes worse than if it did fail. Um, The Soviet Union, which is... Not exactly Marxist, but at least uses Marxist language. Not exactly Marxist in the sense that I'm not sure Marx would approve of most of what they did. But um, when you see things like that, it's very difficult to continue to believe in Promethean politics. When that happens, you go one of two directions. You either give up on politics, or you slide into this thing that Purdy calls therapeutic politics. Therapeutic politics is a lot of empty gestures. So again, he's railing against Bill Clinton here. And uh, man, I would love to hear him talk about the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, I would. I just. I mean, no wonder he supports Sanders because, <laughs> given his uh, his well documented distrust of the Clintons. Um, but so, for example, you get Clinton wanting to start a national conversation about race, and so he, he appoints a committee that has absolutely no political power that just talks about race and eventually dissolves because they can't agree on anything. That's therapeutic politics. In fact, Clinton's famous uh, slogan, I feel your pain, is therapeutic mm-hmm. politics. It's, 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 it's words instead of actions. If he really felt the pain of poor people, he would do something to make their lives better, but he didn't. Words are cheap. The problem with therapeutic politics, it just makes things worse. It just makes people more cynical because if this is all politics is, if it's all empty words in order to keep get elected, why should anybody have anything to do with it? So both Promethean politics and therapeutic politics block the way to the middle ground where politics is not everything, but politics can make actual concrete differences in people's lives. So his his role model seems to be he 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 mourns the loss of Lyndon Johnson's great society. And I don't know if it's that he agrees with everything that Johnson wanted to do, but he he says that was really the last time in American politics where you had the sense that we could really really do something and that we really really should do something using government intervention. Now, what I would add that he doesn't, Purdy is, um, in an article I read, he described himself as a non-theist, or he, he, he said, yeah, I don't think he uses that term, but he says he's not a theist. Um, I, I think my, my explanation for all this is that Promethean politics and therapeutic politics and cynicism result from, result from a failure to put politics in its proper eternal place, that, that it, it has this intermediary role between God and the individual. Stuff you get in the New Testament with Paul instructing people to obey authority and the the sense that that many Calvinists have that the government is there to curve human curb? Curb? I think it's curb. Curb. Curb Curb. Curb (laughs) human evil. Um, I, I, I think... I think such yeah, the, a the problem is when it does nothing but curve human evil. Yeah, that's true. But but <laughs> yeah. attempting attempting to remake human nature is is foolish and heretical. Uh, withdrawing mm. entirely is foolish. I don't know if it's heretical. It's foolish. I, I don't want to. I don't want to get the Anabaptists too mad. <laughs> um, and 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 also this therapeutic politics is obviously nonsensical. It does nothing. Um, but but. 
with it, with an appropriate sense of what politics is for, with that telos that you're talking about, and a telos grounded in some sort of eternal perspective, I think I think you can have a politics that does what politics is meant to do. I'm what I'm skeptical of with with uh, with Purdy's proposal in this book, which we haven't really gotten to, and his proposal in After Nature, which is the only other of his books I've read, is that. I can't share his optimism until we can ground politics in something eternal, which I'm very skeptical we're ever going to be able to do in a society that's as fragmented as ours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, just to follow up on that a little bit, I think that this uh, shift away from Promethean politics and the cynicism that rises up in response to therapeutic politics is precisely what leads to what we talked about before, Namely, the elevation of the tech entrepreneur along the lines of Wired and then the sort of billionaire philanthropist along the lines of Fast Company as the real heroes of our society, right? They are actually getting things done where the congressman is simply going to Washington and fundraising all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right, Elon Musk is is the moral voice of our society. Right, right. And then... You know, that's when we get, you know, the, you know, the oft reported uh, record low confidence levels in both houses of Congress. Uh, this is where we get, you know, the, well, I mean, you know, frankly, uh, the rise of two candidates, you know, one who is leading his primary race and the other one who is giving the, you know, who was supposed to be sort of the legacy candidate 18 months ago, a real run for her money. But both of them have this following that say what he's going to do is not simply to go in and to do politics well, but he's going to go in and basically trash everything that's been so corrupt for so long. Now, I I think it's naive to think that either Trump or Sanders is going to be able to do that. Um, But uh, that seems to be the mythology that, you know, leads into sort of 2016 politics insofar as there is a 2016 politics. Hmm. Talking about the, the difference between um, the, the Promethean and the, and the, and the therapeutic, um, mm-hmm. we, we talked earlier about um, the campus protests and things, things of that nature, and certainly not, um, not, not everything, um, but I'm reminded of, you know, on some, on some campuses, demands including um, change the to change the names that are on the campus buildings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, talk is, about therapeutic, it, right? Right. That, and that that was you know that was going to be my point. Is that is that de- is that demanding therapy? Right. You know, we feel bad when we look at this. So put the right words around us so that we feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is so that many a, of those protests it, to me seem to be about feelings rather than about actual concrete goals. Right. I mean, but but it seems as if now that's that's actually a that's not just words. That's an act. They're saying we feel bad. You need to act through words to make us feel good. And sometimes mm-hmm. more than words. Like, I like, think like our like our problem is that we feel bad. <laughs> one of the schools, maybe Emory wanted students to have control over the hiring of faculty. 
Yeah. Really? Which, you know, I really hesitate to side with the administration in a protest. I, I really do. But uh, <laughs> the idea that students should be able to choose faculty is so cacked. Like, that is that is just, that's nuts. I, 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 I wouldn't trust my best students to have to have hiring power. They're not ready for it. Well, and if, well it, oh, go ahead, David. It, it's nuts in a way that the introduction of this book deals with. It's assuming that the the students already have developed all of the all of the ideas, all of the maturity that they need to have in order to determine whose voices will guide them in their education. That's right. Yeah, because they don't need to learn anything. It's the consumerist model of education. I'm here to get so, a degree, and and you and, work for me. And 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 I already know what what kind of voice I want to hear. I already know what's good for me, and I want you to provide to provide the voices that I already know I want to listen to. Mm-hmm. Because all of the voices are basically equal intellectually, so this is the flavor that I prefer. As long, yeah, well, they're all equal intellectually as long as they they affirm the things I already believe, and if they don't, they're a bunch of bigots, or they're unqualified, or they hate me, yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is a weird way in which, and I hate to keep harping on this, I hate to keep stumping for the Christian college, but this is a weird way in which Christian colleges are more open-minded than a lot of these elite secular institutions. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you know, the, this is, uh, and you'll, you'll be able to tell, I taught Derrida here recently in a literary theory class, but this is a way in which the authority of a hierarchical institution like a university can be pharmacon, right? Uh, it is the remedy for certain things that go wrong, but at the same time, it can also, the same thing can be poison as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, we've sketched out the major contours of Purdy's argument in this book, but I know we've passed some little gems along the way. So what else uh, in this reading do you find worth thinking about um, and you want to present to our listeners for this week? Nathan? One of the things that I thought he did especially well in Chapter 2, the one that we didn't spend as much time on, Mm -hmm. uh, is to discuss the way that mass media... Uh, and again, I mean, he's writing in, you know, the late 90s when web browsers are just coming on the scene before Google takes its place of prominence, before blogging becomes really the mass phenomenon it does during the George W. Bush years. But even with all of those factors not in the picture yet, he says that politics by the late 90s has become a sort of spectator sport. Uh, you know, the news coverage, and, and if you were around in 1998 to see the Debacle that was the uh, Clinton Lewinsky scandal. You know exactly how this plays out. Uh, politics becomes not a matter of public goods, public concerns, and public will, but it becomes a sort of celebrity gossip subgenre. Uh, you know, who is it that's sleeping with whom? What did they lie about? Uh, what are they wearing? Uh, you know, what happened to what they were wearing in the case of that particular trial? Uh, but this, and again, this term really wasn't ascendant yet either, but this sort of reality TV approach to politics is one of the factors that I think Purdy articulates so nicely when he talks about why it's so difficult even to imagine what a serious political existence would look like in the age of cable TV, 
my hunch is that once you add Facebook, Twitter, uh, and RateYourProfessor.com to the mix, uh, you really do have, I mean, an analysis that begins in 1999 that just bears fruit that even he couldn't have anticipated by 2016. Michael, what did you see? Uh, he points out culture's personal moral exhaustion. So cynicism says we're all hypocrites, but it says, and I'm going to quote him here, hypocrisy can be resolved by redefinition, by professing a set of values closer to one's actions. So we give up on values that might actually change us, and we just say, well, the right thing to do is the thing I'm already doing. So here's an example. This is mine, not his. I don't know what he would think of this. Third wave feminism sees men behaving like rutting pigs. The appropriate mm -hmm. response would be men should not behave like rutting pigs, right? We, we should do something to make men to, – to, to foster the virtue of fidelity in men. Right. We should order our common lives differently. Instead, it says some, – some people within it say women should also behave like rutting pigs. This is the sex in the city <laughs> style feminism. Women, women should mm -hmm. have sex like men rather than men should have sex like women, whatever that means. How about, both, how about both genders behave faithfully and reasonably? Then, at that point, society loses sight of any kind of genuine sexual standard, and you end up with the society we live in, in which the only sexual ethic most people can conceive anymore is consent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I thought that was very interesting. And again, I don't know what he would think of the application I just put that to, but that's my <laughs> application. Sure. Well, one of the things that uh, I, I appreciate about this, and, and and this is this is less one particular thing um, in in the reading as it is uh, kind of an observation about the whole thing, is as um, as much as as he is leading this conversation towards wanting all of us to re-engage in this community endeavor of politics from a perspective of sincere hope um i think it's interesting that the that the voice who is saying this is someone whose development was so defined by atypical and really outsider development mm -hmm. um you know th you know th this is he was a homeschooler his and in a homeschooler in a way that was um, uh, that, that that was particularly different from the institutional from the f from the great average, right? If that if that makes sense. So that uh, I, I I think it's really interesting that it's that it's this voice um, that's that's saying these things, and leads me leads me to this point. And if if Michael can stump for you know Christian colleges, I can stump for homeschooling. Um, it's the importance of maintaining the space for for genuinely and radically different ways of de of developing from childhood to adulthood um, in the society, so that someone can see these things and say these things, and not be so utterly immersed in the mass in the mass culture that it becomes invisible the way water is to a fish. Does that make sense? Um, and, and I think that both sides of, um, both sides of the 
political uh, perspective, uh, political spectrums are 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 often um, not encouraging of permitting people to grow up in a way outside of the mainstream that would permit them to think outside of it in the way that this presents. Anyway. So who's on top? Who's uh, on at the helm for next week? That would be me. And what are we looking at? Uh, we're going to be taking the middle chapters of the same book for common things by Jedediah Purdy. The mm-hmm. big uh, questions at hand are going to be what would it even mean to live a public life? And what would it mean to attend to the political as an alternative to our current uh, celebrity culture politainment? Excellent. Well, dear listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed uh, this particular episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, we encourage you to uh, pick up this book if, if this episode has interested uh, you so that you can uh, read along. You can pick it up fairly inexpensively. Um, uh, of course, you know, nineteen ninety nine. There are used copies out there. So, in the meanwhile, if you want to give us feedback, you can comment on our Facebook uh, our Facebook page. You can post comments on these on the show notes at our blog at the Christ, at christianhumanist dot org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. Uh, also, we are on iTunes. U if if iTunes is the no, way. Just that, iTunes. Just iTunes. Just iTunes. Yeah, not, not iTunes U. It's different. <laughs> not iTunes anymore. Goes through, goes through official institutions. We are not. Yes. We are not associated and, uh, officially with an institution. No, no, no college wants us grubs. <laughs> really? Yeah, I thought I thought we were through iTunes U. All right. Nope. Yeah, never mind. Never mind. Forget that. Um, <laughs> yeah. If iTunes is the way that you get us, uh, then give us a review. Give us uh, give us many many stars. We like lots of stars. It's it's one of our favorite things. In the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs uh, on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore wishing you all grand weeks. Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Amberly Copeland. And I'll leave you with the words of Martin Luther, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.